Bill Dershowitz is one of the sharpest cultural critics of our time. I may not agree with everything he says, but I have to hand it to the guy. He's a powerhouse of incisive, piercing insight into all things culture. His books include A Jane Austen Education and The Death of the Artist, as well as my personal favorite, Excellent Sheep. And now he's got a new one on the way. In July, we sat down and talked about The End of Solitude, an exceptionally well-curated set of essays that I'd recommend to anybody. For those interested, the book drops on August 23rd and can be snagged at the link in the description. Be sure to check out the Quillette website soon for an exclusive excerpt from The End of Solitude. And while you're there, throw in a subscription and join the club. You can thank me later. All the best, and until next time. Bill Dershowitz, thanks so much for coming on to 27 Rouge. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you've just written this new book. Um, I'll put I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, I, I guess what I would like to begin with is sort of going through a few sections of it uh, and talking about a particular essay. So it's it's an essay collection. Um, my my first question to you before we get into you know the the end of solitude and and, and tech culture. Um, is about why you decided to put forth this collection of essays. Uh, what inspired you to do this? Oh, well, so these are essays that I've written over the last, mostly over the last 15 years. A couple of them go back uh, to the mid-90s. Um, I just, you know, uh, th there's a kind of fugitive quality to things that you publish in in magazines, you know, they come out, people read them, and for the most part, they disappear. Um, and I wanted to gather what I thought were my best pieces over the years. I've written a lot of pieces, um, something like uh, 150, and uh, I went through them all, and I selected, it ended up being 42 pieces, um, that I thought were worth preserving between the covers of a book, and that had a certain kind of coherence. So that's why I did it. What would you think that, how would you define that sort of coherence as the lamentable decline of Western civilization or of institutions in the U.S.? Or what, what are some themes that you see throughout? We'll get into the specifics in a second. We don't need to dwell on generalities, but you know, what, what are some of the defining themes that you saw in, um, and this selection of 42 essays? Right, that's a good question, because there is a wide range of topics, as we're going to discuss. And it was, um, I mean, I mean, the coherence, first of all, and this may sound glib, but the coherence, first of all, is that the same person wrote them all. That's, so it's a that's certain, true. So, it, <laughs> so, it's, so in other words, it's a, it's a specific sensibility, it's a specific point of view, as it's developed over the years, as I've thought about, a variety of different things and have had my own experiences, whether it's with higher education or just an ordinary user of the internet or someone who, you know, reads fiction and looks at art and so on and so forth. Um, but I did have to think about, you know, what does bind all these together, especially when I needed, when I, when it was time to write the preface, you know, to introduce people to the person writing this and, and what is this about? And I realized, and this is what I say in the preface, that um, it's, they're ultimately all about being an individual. 
that there's a, there's a certain, historically, there's a certain, uh, we don't often think about the self in a historical way, but um, the way human beings have experienced themselves, it's not, it, it's, it's evolved and it changes from culture to culture, it's different from culture to culture. And there's a, a certain kind of selfhood that's a, that, that emerged in modernity. It emerged with universal literacy, it emerged with um, the way our houses started to be constructed differently so that we each had our own rooms, um, with the spread of higher education. And it's an idea of um, an independent self whose job it is to stand back from the world, to stand back from social commitments, not to not have them, but to stand back in their mind, you know, we can think about Thoreau. He's sort of a perfect example of this, both in terms of what he wrote and the way he embodied this by going off into the woods and being a separate person and, and standing back from society and thinking about it and thinking about how he wanted to be part of it. This is all a very modern thing. This was not available before, you know, say the late 18th century. And in fact, the word individual, in the sense that we mean it when we say being an individual, was coined by Rousseau in the late 18th century. And it's bound up with the way uh, our understanding of art has changed. So art is not an adjunct of religion or of the state as it used to be, but it becomes this independent way of telling the truth and of absorbing the truth for the individual. Now, all of that, I think, is under threat. I think that all of that is probably passing away because the internet has given us a very different kind of selfhood that uh, really can't stand back. And that's the meaning of the title and of the title of the title essay, which is the end of solitude, hmm. right? We, we, we're, we are losing that sense of apartness and of the ability. I know this is sort of a cliche. What does it really mean? But the ability to think for ourselves by first of all, standing back and um, drawing the line between where the world ends and we start as an independent entity. And one way or another, sometimes obliquely, uh, that's what these essays are about. They're either about being an individual or they're just a product of me attempting to be an individual and thinking things through for myself. It's interesting. I, ha um, I had David Samuels on the podcast a couple months ago. Uh, he writes for, he's an editor at Tablet and he's written for The New Yorker and times and tablet and other places and he was sort of talking about the something similar um the degree to which it's not just that we can't think for ourselves it's that we we're not aware that it's happening it's like you know lobsters in a pot that are slowly being boiled alive um there's these massive sort of opaque tech companies, whether it's, you know, Facebook or Apple or Microsoft or whoever, who sort of dictate consciously or unconsciously, I think probably according to him, it's, it's, it's conscious what we are allowed to think. And then, you know, where we, we end up like censoring ourselves, not, not in an active, oh, I can't say this way, but in term, in an algorithmic, like what's presented to us on our Instagram feeds and our Facebook feeds and the TikTok algorithm. Um, all of these young people using this stuff sort of have never seen, not all of them, I mean, not, we don't mean to generalize, but a lot of people 
can't remember a world where this stuff didn't feature prominently. And because everything is so curated, um, you do you do sort of begin to wonder whether or not there is that old spark of modernity of enlightenment realization that you know one can should and must think for themselves anyway perhaps i'm 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 rambling here but um it's it's an interesting point um and it brings us very nicely into the title essay uh so as as mentioned uh i think we'll go through one essay from each of each section of the book or almost each section of the book, beginning with tech culture. Um, so the end of solitude is basically the phenomenon that you just described, correct? Yeah, that's right. How did this build off of the death of the artist? I, I sort of saw similar similar themes. I know this is a bit tangential, but this this similar idea that the individual creator is, I don't know, uh, slowly being encroached upon was it does the question make sense yeah but uh, so the death of the artist for people who don't know is my previous book it came out two years ago um it's it's about uh it's about the um it's about what happens what has happened to the arts economy over the last 20 or so years since the internet came and changed completely changed the economics of being an artist so it's about it's about surviving economically as an artist today it's um, it's a very journalistic book. Um, I talk to a lot of people, a lot of young artists, just about how they're making a living. Um, and uh, But I also speculate, I also, more than speculate, I talk about how these changing economic conditions are also changing the kind of art that gets made and the role that art plays in society and the way we think about artists. Um, of course, that book came out two years ago, and this is a collection of older essays. I mean, some of the essays are quite... Uh, new, but uh, the title essay came out in 2009, so mm. it doesn't really have much of, much of a relationship to the death of the artist. Although I agree with you that I mean, you know, one of the things that's getting lost, and this has as much to do with, as I say, with the economics of being an artist, is the ability to have an independent voice as an artist, because there's this tremendous drive because of the platforms and their algorithms for everything to look kind of the same. And for everyone also, these, there are also political reasons for this, uh, for people not to be too controversial, um, and even just for people not to be too original, because the system kind of can't process it. Like, you can't, you can't make even the barest kind of living being too original, too ahead of the audience, too experimental, too avant-garde. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so there are those... There's that connection, but uh, I mean, the essay "The End of Solitude" is really about. Uh, it's, it really comes out of my experience, you know, joining Facebook in 2008, and uh, and I wrote the essay a year later. Kind of, kind of, um, and I joined Facebook, and all of my friends joined Facebook. So it was something that was happening to all of us, and I was observing like there's this very sudden change in our, you know, inner mental weather. And uh, and uh, what is it? What is it doing to us? What is it going to do to us? No, I guess what's disconcerting, Bill, is that you wrote this in <laughs> two thousand and nine. It seems that the problem has only compounded and gotten significantly worse. 
Um, I remember my early days of Facebook. I think I created one maybe like 2011, 2012. And I've seen the platform sort of slowly change over time. And now, I mean, there's all kinds of variants, whether Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, there's a thing called Visco, Tumblr was around for a while. Our entire life is sort of broadcast uh, to the world. You know, and I mean, there's all this um, research that's come out about, you know, the more people being connected to lots of others in the internet, it's still being incredibly lonely. And, you know, we don't have to like get into the nitty gritty there, but 2009. Wow. You know, honestly, I I should have looked at the date on that. But the the problem, I w- would you agree that the problem has just gotten rampantly worse over the last decade and changed? Oh, of course, of course. And I think the main reason is not even the proliferation of platforms, although that's obviously an issue. The main reason, the main thing that didn't exist in 2009 was the smartphone. I mean, that, that was probably the most significant change of all, because I'm talking about being on Facebook on my laptop. You know, when I, when I went out into the street, when I walked away from my desk, I was away from it. And then the smartphone came along uh, shortly thereafter, I believe, and suddenly you're never away from that, ever. And of course, you know, the cliche, but it's true. I mean, every time you walk into a coffee shop or get into the subway, um, everyone is on, I mean, 80% of the people are on their phones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was in London yesterday for, um, uh, visiting some people and, um, you know, and one day I used, I used my phone for about a hundred different things. I was responding to emails in the morning. I was messaging with people on Instagram, you know, uh, on my commute, I use my phone to pay for things because there's a, there's a, you can have your, your debit card on the phone. I used it for directions to know not only which train I needed to take, but which platform the train was going to come to because there's all these mm-hmm. different platforms. And when I, I took pictures of shit, um, the thing is like, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's like a Swiss army knife, I guess, but, um, you're, and that it's like the, it's always with you and you always want to go for it. There's been research done about like phantom vibrations, people feeling vibrations on their leg when, you know, they don't have their phone because they're so used to it. The dopamine <laughs> hits you get when you see it. No, it's, I'm totally serious, Bill. Um, no, I believe you. Yeah. I like, believe you. And it's not, of course, it's not, I mean, it's not the direction apps and so forth that are the problem. Um, it's the fact that No, but that they you, are, Bill, because it... The, I don't want to say any of it is a problem individually, but the thing is, is you have this device without which you cannot live, basically. But the, okay, I mean, I agree with you, but that's not really what I'm what I'm drilling down on here. So what, what I'm drilling, drilling down, down on is not that you need to get somewhere and you look on your phone and it tells you how. I do that too. It's that it's it's all the it's the it's that when you have a free moment. And you don't need the phone. You're standing in line. You could read a book. You could look at the people around you. You could just breathe. We are so addicted, not to the phone per se, but to the connectivity that the phone gives us. So the texting, the reading stuff online, the going on social, pla- on social media platforms, 
Those are the things that we are using to fill every second of our lives because we're addicted to, to, to having our brain stimulated by this thing. Mm. Okay. That, I mean, that to me, I understand we could also say we shouldn't be too dependent on this device and do everything through it, pay and find directions and so forth. But I'm talking about that, that core function of the phone in our lives, which is to fill every available second. Hmm. What's the solution to this? I mean, this, this addiction. It's the same solution as every other addiction. It's not to, you know, prohibition didn't work. And it, and it, no large scale solution, I believe, is even possible, would, would be desirable. It's not about banning Facebook. It's about each person. As I say, this is a book about being an individual, and it's directed to people who want to be individuals. So we can each, you know, you, you know we're not going to ban the sale of alcohol, but you can go to AA, you can stop drinking, or you can learn to, to moderate your drinking. You know, so I have, a, I have an essay. It's one of the last essays I wrote for this book. It's about Harold Rosenberg, who is one of my intellectual heroes. He's a 20th century uh, critic. And he says, for the individual, the last voice in the issue of being or not being himself is still his own. We always have that power. And I've had to learn since I first got on Facebook and was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling because this was so exciting to manage my own relationship with uh, social media and more recently with my phone. It's, it's just a matter of making one small decision at a time not to let this thing take your life over. Well, I mean, what, practically, what do you do? Do you put it in a lockbox for, you know, in the morning and at night? Uh, no, I just, I just control myself. I mean, I, you know, I remind myself, you know, uh, um, you know, when I'm online, uh, when I'm in line, um, uh, you know, getting a cup of coffee and I reach for my phone, I stop myself, hmm. you know, and sometimes I don't stop myself su su successfully, or sometimes I start looking and I'm like, this is stupid. Put the damn thing away. And yeah. I take in my environment and I look at the people around me and it's, they're, they're always much more interesting than anything I can get on my phone. Yeah. Um, I totally agree. I, I mean, this is not as good of a solution. I'm, I'm just working on this myself now, but, um, to their credit, Apple has put, uh, there's like a time limit, um, function that you can put onto the iPhone where you can restrict the amount of times that certain apps are used. Now, of course, it just, it comes up with a little like X type thing, a, a, an hourglass emoji when you've reached your time limit. Mine is set to two hours per day for Instagram and email, my two main vices. Um, but uh, you can always just click like ignore the limit for today or there's like a 15 yeah. more minute button. But at least then I'm cognizant because, you know, before right. you wake up on a Saturday and you're just in bed for, and then three hours go by. What were you doing? Or like at night, you know, I used to read books. I found myself in the last few years, like you just scrolling through <laughs> very random shit on the internet. There's like videos right. of, I don't even know what. Um, right. 
And, and anyway, we don't need to dwell on this too much. But I think certainly it's something that that can be done that the time limits for me have been helpful. What you're saying is just being present, being aware of it. It's like, you know, the other thing is when you, when you get off of, when you break the cycle of addiction just a little bit, it's like being a sober person around a bunch of drunk people at a party. You just see how fucking ridiculous everyone looks or like you just, it, it just pr provides you with so much clarity when you walk into a Starbucks, I mean, that's sort of the, the breeding ground for this kind of thing. When you walk into any coffee shop, it doesn't have to be a Starbucks, and you see everyone glued to the things, and you're not. It's like, I would imagine, being the only sober person among a bunch of uh, mm -hmm. drunkards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, oh, actually, you know what? On the subject of this bill, I want to ask, because I was talking to David Samuels about this, um, and I'm just curious. You're an astute uh, student of history and, and, and of the world. Is there any precedent for this in the history of not just Western civilization, but any civilization? I know the, the Gutenberg printing press might be might have been one when the Bible was translated from Latin into local languages. That might have been another. But um, is there any precedent for the kind of um, connectedness that we now to which we now have access that may be running overboard? Like, is there... You know, is this a totally novel phenomenon for which the lessons of history are inept? Um, or can we look to history to sort of direct us a little bit here? Well, I'll say a couple things. The first one is not about connectivity per se, but I think uh, television, probably radio also. I mean, I think we're more, you know, television kind of took over from radio in many ways. But I, I think... Um, uh, television was a huge dislocation in people's lives, and I think people got addicted to it. I mean, I when I was a kid, I watched TV like five hours a day. There are people who have to have the television on in the background all the time or the radio on in the background all the time. It's kind of a voice. It makes you feel less lonely. So it's not a direct connection to people who are answering you back, but I think it is, it is um, – precedent for this kind of intrusion into the home, right? So it's not the telegraph, it's not the movies, it's actually the radio and then the television is actually coming into your home and the world is present to you and electronic stimulation is available to you in a way that that's never happened before. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that if you look back in the 19th century when newspapers become cheap and everyone's, you know, literacy spreads and everyone's reading newspapers all the time. People write some of the same things about um, uh, so, sort of sort of addiction to that or, or just the, the way that it's kind of, maybe not addiction, but just the way that it's kind of um, like you have to, you know, you have to like, I think Thoreau says this in Walden, like people will, you know, you'll take a nap and get up and it's like, what's the latest news? Like, well, nothing really important changed in the last hour that you've been asleep, but there becomes this kind of addictive need to know, quote unquote, what's going on. So um, I think there are partial precedents. I think this is, this is, um, this is a difference, certainly uh, uh, a quantitative, but even also a qualitative difference, what we're experiencing now.
Yeah, I think the qualitative, I mean, the quantitative difference sort of goes without saying, but what I fear is that it is the qualitative difference. The fact that the pace at which technology has developed over the last, I don't know, 25 years or so is so extraordinary and so extreme that it's completely outstripped anything we've seen in the in 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 the course of human history which you know leads me to be somewhat pessimistic about our ability to find you know solutions from the past i mean you can read philosophy people today you know of course i would recommend reading herodotus or kant or whatever to anyone as you know not because or or sunso not because they need they need to command armies but because it's a good thing to read i think we can draw some lessons but that what we're seeing now is it's just different from anything we've ever seen before in in nature in in in, in qualitatively as you've said yeah i think that's true um i mean i think the lessons of the past can come in many different forms and are unpredictable but uh this is a novel experience that i that we need to to address in novel ways, um, but they're ways that I think we've already talked about. Mm. Um, okay, well, I won't. I don't want to spend the whole interview talking about just this one essay, though it is a very good essay, uh, which presents a very interesting set of ideas and also lends a title to the book. So, I am not upset about the fact that we we spent a bit more time on it. But uh, I want to move on to the next section now, which is higher education, and discuss uh, your essay, The Disadvantages of an Elite Education. I remember, as I mentioned to you in the pre-interview chat, reading this for the first time uh, while in Boston, um, doing an internship after my freshman year at Princeton, uh, and being really confronted um, uh, and pleasantly surprised by the degree to which someone was putting to words a lot of the strange things that I was observing. Uh, so could you just briefly, uh, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know if summarize is the appropriate word, but, uh, could you just talk a little bit about the disadvantages of an elite education and what you were getting at there? Yeah, sure. So this is a piece that I wrote in 2008. It eventually evolved into, my book, Excellent Sheep, um, 2008 was also coincidentally the year that I left uh, teaching at Yale, where I had been teaching for 10 years. I also had taught as a graduate student at Columbia for five years before that. And during all of those years, I started to see a certain pattern of problems with my students, right? And, and the main problem was that they often approach the end of college without really any idea what they wanted to do with themselves, what they wanted out of life, really without any sense of, kind of any sense of who they were, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then there, there are other issues, like my students were really smart, but very few of them were intellectually engaged on a deeper level. Like for them, intellectual engagement, most of, for most of them, just they didn't understand that it meant more than doing your homework than just like doing the reading. Mm. So there were only a few students who really seemed to have a larger sense of, of intellectual mission or purpose. Um, 
And eventually I started to understand that what I was seeing was fundamentally the result of the way the college admissions process had evolved. So I started college in 81, and there was already a pretty competitive admissions process. There was a lot of, you know, stress among my peers about getting into the best colleges. But the ones who got into the best colleges might have had done, might have done like three AP courses and three extracurriculars. Um, by the time I was at Yale, those numbers were, you know, more like, I don't know, eight, eight APs and 10 extracurriculars. And now it's probably 12 and 15 or something ridiculous like that, because this yeah. is just a process that's fed on itself. It's an arms race whose purpose is, 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 is completely internal. In other words, there's no real purpose for doing any of these things, except that this is what you have to do to get into the best colleges. So, so the colleges are producing these, you know, who, you know, well, excellent sheep. They're people who are excellent in the sense that they're great at doing all the things that the grown-ups want them to do, at jumping through all the hoops, at checking all the boxes. Uh, they're sheep in the sense, many of them, in the sense that they are, first of all, kind of lost. They're not capable of giving themselves their own direction, but also because they tend to move in herds. So... And we see this not only that in the sense that everyone wants to get into the same few colleges, which is why some of these colleges have acceptance rates that are now under 5%. Yeah. But even the, the students, I mean, this, this dynamic, the psychology, once it's set in place, it just, there's nothing that interrupts it. So the same logic kicks in as soon as you get to college. And now people are competing for a very limited number of prestige uh, postgraduate opportunities. And the majority, the significant majority of students who graduate from Ivy League colleges, Stanford, Duke, even the most prestigious liberal arts colleges that are supposedly different, like, you know, Pomona or Williams, the vast majority go into one of five fields, which is law, medicine, finance, consulting, or tech. So, uh, in 2008, I wrote this essay, The Disadvantage of an Elite Education. If I'd known that it was going to be widely circulated, I would have given it a, a probably a more elegant title. But it does state the matter clearly, which is, and it's supposed to be counterintuitive. Like, there are many advantages to an elite education, to graduating from the Ivy League, and I acknowledge that. I mean, they really, it really puts you in, uh, it kind of inject, injects you into the, into the elite, into the social elite. Um, it gives you these prestige opportunities that wouldn't otherwise be available. I'm trying to underscore that there are some very significant disadvantages. And when the piece came out in 2008, and it came out in the American Scholar, which is a, you know, which is a literary quarterly, it's not a high circulation magazine, but uh, the piece was picked up pretty much instantly online um, by students. I didn't even expect students to see the piece. I thought I, I thought I was really writing for fellow professors who actually didn't care because they don't care about their students. But I started to get <laughs> emails, like long, intense, confessional, dark emails from dozens and eventually hundreds of students uh, at places like Princeton or Harvard or Yale or Stanford or recent graduates of those schools. Um, and it kind of became this phenomenon. Um, and it led to it, I mean, it led to the book and it led to a lot of work with these students, a lot of talks at a lot of schools and a lot of correspondence. I still hear from students about that essay and about the book. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I experienced something very, or not even very similar. I experienced the phenomenon that you're describing at Princeton. Um, I've written about this. I wrote an essay for Quillette uh, called The Liars Club about my experience at Princeton talking about many of these things. Uh, the statistics that I had found had one third of the graduating class going to uh, management consulting, investment banking, or tech. I know you mentioned some other fields, um, but uh, one third, not the majority. I guess the majority. I mentioned law like, and medicine as well. You mentioned law and medicine, right? Yeah. But I mean, the the not that the statistics are are unimportant, but just putting them aside for a second, um, and aware of the fact that you mentioned law and medicine as well. Um, I, I want to just discuss the psychology of this for a second. I think that you have it down pretty well is the sort of performative theatrical nature of just finding the hardest thing to do and then doing it. So when you train, when you four years of your life are spent trying to claw your way into a place with a single digit acceptance rate, you're taught to do hard things, you know, like what you know, jumping through the most difficult possible hoop just to do it. And then you carry that with you into college. But the, the question is, Bill, where does this end? A lot of these kids, you know, uh, uh, putting or just setting aside for a second the fact that, you know, they're not learning how to think for themselves and that they're just sort of following the herd and jumping through whatever hoop is presented to them. Um, where does it end? Because, you know, once they graduate and then they go off and do their two years in investment banking or two years in management consulting, a lot of them go and compete for the same, you know, prestigious no, it, um, MBA. No, it doesn't. Like, where does it, it end? It, it doesn't end. That's the it thing. End. That's the issue. <laughs> it doesn't end until you decide to make it end. And I know plenty of people. I'm in my late 50s. I know plenty of people who this is just how they've been their entire lives and it would never occur to them to be otherwise. And... You know, I mean, their life is their life and they could lead it however they want. But it often this this same complex of sort of psychological characteristics can often make the people around you miserable, mm. especially once you have children and you start to impose these expectations on them. At this point, we're now I mean, what we're talking about is the meritocracy and the way that it reproduces, produces and reproduces itself. And it's basically been in place since the late 60s. So it's so we're now well over 50 years, which means that many of the kids going through this have parents who went through it and have parents who are exactly like this. You know, I mean, it's the cliche, it's the proverbial tiger mother, except what tiger mother Amy Chua didn't understand or refused to acknowledge is that what she was describing was not something Chinese. What she was describing was something upper middle class. This is how the upper middle class lives now. So it doesn't end until you make it end. And again, the point of writing the book, Excellent Sheep, and the point of reproducing this essay now, and the work that I've continued to do with this, is not that I think the system is going to change. It would be great if it could change. It's, it's probably not going to change. It's talking to the individual, the individual student or the individual recent graduate in their 20s, or maybe not so recent graduate, who wants to break out of this rat race because you can do it. Mm. Now, I always emphasize that in order to do it, you have to give stuff up. 
You're not going to be, you're not going to attain the kind of status you otherwise would, probably. You probably won't be as wealthy as you otherwise would. But understand that if you stay on the treadmill, you're also giving something up. And I think what you're giving up is actually much more important. And it's the chance to live the life that's the right life for you. And to <laughs> internalize your, you know, your locus of, of um, approval, right? Instead of chasing, because that's really what it is. You know, you, I mean, Alice Miller, the great psych psychiatrist, wrote about this in the drama of The Gifted Child many years ago, that what this is ultimately about is being raised by parents who, whose love is conditional on you achieving and therefore making them look good and satisfying their narcissistic needs. And you continue to chase that conditional parental love your entire life, sometimes literally, but even, you know, <laughs> your parents can, you know, even after your parents are dead or you can separate from your parents, but you still have that separate psychologically, but you still have that internal need. And maybe you don't even know where it comes from at this point, but that, but all the gold stars are really just surrogates for that love that you learned was always conditional. Like David Foster Wallace, who really lived this life and wrote about it, said, uh, uh, he says this about a fictional character. He says that my family was like a business. You were only as good as your last sales quarter. Yeah. Uh, the, I, the, the terminology I used in my book to, to describe this was a prestige orgasm. I said that my mm. peers at Princeton were, and I myself, for a while, while I was there, um, would just chase one prestige orgasm after the next. It's like, oh, I, you know, I, I, I got into this club or eating club so that, you know, I could get this job at Goldman Sachs or wherever. Um, right. Some of the metaphors I used were rather crude, uh, you know, <laughs> students masturbating to the, you know, the arch, the Goldman Sachs logo. But, um, it it is it is sort of a performative. I think you've 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 pegged it correctly. This conditional uh, theatrical performance in you know it, it, I guess it doesn't stop um, until you set, step aside for a second and say, hey, wait a minute, um, why am I doing this? I'm am I doing I'm just am I doing this because it's the thing to do? Now, I mean that being said, I don't want to be overly judgmental here there's plenty of good reasons to go into something like you know investment banking or whatever you need to pay your mother's medical bills and you're from a lower class family and then all of a sudden you're going to have a six figure salary one year out of college it's more money than your family's ever seen in their entire life like that's a good reason to go yeah, into investment banking you know what but you know what how many people actually fall into that category okay <laughs> i've heard people say that a lot and the people who say it to me are not those people and they, yeah. it's a kind of, it's a kind of shell game where they use someone else's excuse for ah. them. Okay. I mean, the fact is that the students at elite schools skew hu with huge disproportion to the upper income, upper end of the income distribution. I mean, the families they come from, you know, typically at these schools, there are more people from the top 1% than from the bottom 60%. So it's bullshit. I mean, yeah, every once in a while, there's a kid like that. But for the most part, these there's a whole set of alibis 
that these employers will feed you because they know that it's not cool to say, come and work for us because you'll get filthy rich because nobody wants to believe that about themselves, although that's always why it's happening. So they'll be like, oh, you're going to develop skills and you'll be able to decide in a couple of years, you know, it's a two year, you know, you'll be with us for two years, then you could do something else. And, and this is, you know, like I said, it's just, it's just a bunch of alibis. And then you get locked in. I've had students come, former students come back to me and say, I really wish I could get, get out of Wall Street, but now I'm addicted to the money. I'm addicted yeah. to the lifestyle. Yeah. I'm too deep. I've heard, I had some friends. I was with some friends the other day. They were talking about what, you know, wanting to do something else, but that they wanted to maintain their lifestyle. And I was like, yeah. well, you don't have time to live. You don't have time to do anything if you're just, you're just right. working all the time. Right. Bill, I, you know, I, I want to ask you about this. Um, I think I would have to double check the statistics, so I don't mean to misquote them. But I think when I was at Princeton, 80% of the students were on financial aid. So I'm not sure that it's accurate that no, no. it's just a First of all, of it's not 80%. It's sort of 50-something percent. At Princeton. Second of all, okay, I look at these numbers all the time. They're at the back of U.S. News, okay? Mm -hmm. They have every – this is part of the, the statistics that schools report to U.S. News, and I look at them obsessively, okay? So typically at a place like Princeton or Harvard or Columbia, it's in the 50%. Second of all – those schools are so wealthy that they give financial aid to people. I mean, Princeton is the wealthiest school in the country, right? <laughs> By uh, endowment per student, it has twice as much money as Harvard, and Harvard is number three. Okay? Yeah. Um, so it's giving financial aid. I don't know the exact cutoff now, but I think when they first announced the program, it was like, not financial aid. You got full a full financial, full financial aid, free tuition, families it's 62%. under- 62%. Here we go. For 2025, it's 62%. You are okay, right. Okay, 62%. Yeah. So it's a little bigger than it used to be. But listen to what I'm telling you. Um, people under, I believe, $180,000 a year, which is a very significant upper middle class salary, get full financial aid, full tuition exemption. Okay, so presumably people even higher than that are also getting financial aid. Mm. Also, if 62% of people at Princeton get financial aid, 38% are not getting financial aid. 38% can afford a, a roughly $300,000 bill for four years of college. Okay, mm. so the numbers I quote when I say they're more from the 1% than from the bottom 60%, this is a big New York Times database that came out five years ago. You can search any college in the country. I happened to look at it yesterday, literally yesterday, for a piece that I'm planning to write. Okay? So this is the reality. Yeah, I think... I, think about that. 38% of people who go to Princeton can just write a check for the $75,000 a year it costs to go to Princeton. 38%. So why do you think it is that if if these students are disproportionately coming from very wealthy backgrounds, why is there a regression to you know these five 
career choices if, if they're not doing it for the money? They're doing it for the... How, how have they been... They're doing it for the money because they are doing it for the money. I mean, coming okay. for money doesn't mean that you're less interested in money. In fact, what it tends to mean, and, I've, and I've, I've observed this a lot from a lot of different kinds of people, it's very hard to choose to be less wealthy than you grew up. So it's actually the richest kids who are uh, most desperate to continue to make tons of money because life is inconceivable to them otherwise. Mm. I mean, rich people, you know, and also like rich people got rich because they're, for the most part, because they're greedy and they really care (laughs) about money. So you're raised by parents like that. And those are the values you're raised with. And also it's just the value, it's the chief value in America. It's like, this is how you you measure self-worth. So why wouldn't they do it? It's a very rare rich kid who says, you know, I'm going to take my trust fund and do what I really want to do with my life. Some of them do it. Some of them do it, but not many. I I understand the push factor here, even if I don't. I mean, there's no, it's not really that important. I, I don't necessarily ag- agree with the inherent, uh, you know, like it, it, all rich people are, are, are greedy kind of argument, you know, but that's, we can put that aside. I understand the push factor of, you know, why some of these kids want to maintain their lifestyle, how they grew up. But on the other side, the pull factor, how have these particular industries been able to sort of play off of, you know, what they understand the psychology of these students to be and pull them in year after year? You mentioned earlier the extraordinary degree to which they come up with these completely nonsensical excuses such as like oh you're gonna come and 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 work in investment banking and it's gonna you know gonna you're gonna offset a shitload of carbon we're gonna do lots of esg whatever that's for the most part i think tends to be bullshit um but i i you've described the push factor what's the pull factor on the other side how are the these corporations or or industries able to pull the students in yeah. Well, first of all, they have uh, they are able to devote enormous resources to recruitment. So they're the ones on campus making the pitch, and the nonprofits and the public school districts don't have the you know they're not present. They're not showing up. They can't show up. Hmm. Um, you know, there's no recruitment pipeline for going into the arts. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, second of all, again, it's it's. They don't have to exert a lot of pull. I mean, um, there's a campus grapevine, right? You get to school, you're a freshman, and you've never heard of um, management consulting. And then, you know, before you know it, you're desperate to get an internship that summer so you can get a better internship, so you can work for Goldman or uh, so you can work for McKinsey or Bain when you graduate. Because... I think, I mean, somebody wrote a book about this. I forget what it's called, an academic study. There's a, um, there's a sort of, um, the, the social information flows down from the seniors to the freshmen, mm. right? Mm. So you just know what you're supposed to do. Yes. You're, you, you know, this is the herd factor, right? You, mm. you find out what, what, the, what the cool things to do are, and cool in those, on those campuses generally means prestigious, Right. Um, and these are, you know, these are the prestige occupations and employers in the country 
leaving colleges aside because they're the ones that pay the most. I mean, what do finance, consulting, tech, law, and medicine have in common? They're all extremely lucrative. Um, there is another thing, though, which I think is really interesting, which is that all five of those uh, um, fields, especially at the entry level, involve work that is essentially another is essentially a form of homework, mm. right? Um, I mean, law and medicine, you're literally in school, but it's this, but even when you get out and you start practicing, it's the same kind of, um, cognitively very, de well, it's yeah, competitive, but it's also, it's not just that it's competitive. It's no, that the problems I are, said, yeah, you said what? Repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's repetitive. There is, you know, great cognitive demand. Um, but the problems are, um, are delineated very clearly, Right. In other words, this is work that does not involve a lot of creativity or innovation, hmm. which are things that this system does not actually develop in people. But they're really good at being the smartest cog to plug into your machine. And that's what mm -hmm. all of those fields, especially at the entry level, involve. There's a very sharp insight, Bill. I, I, I hadn't thought of it like that, but it absolutely is a continuation of precisely the same kind. Of, I mean, you know, we, I used to stay up late in the library at Princeton and you'd see kids drinking Red Bulls and going through their their, their economics problem sets or whatever. And um, that's exactly what you're doing <laughs> in an investment bank. You're staying up late, fixing PowerPoints, just like there's a description we would use for econ P sets like plug and chug. Like once you get the equation, mm -hmm. it's just like really fucking laborious. Mm -hmm. math, but it's, you, it's not that hard once you figure out the equation, you just have to plug in the the numbers for all the hundred variables that you have in there. But anyway, um, that's a, that's a sharp description. I want to be, I want to be respectful of your time, Bill. Um, and there's a few more things I want to talk about. So is there anything else you wanted to say on the subject of, uh, higher education or can we move on uh, no, to the social imagination? On. Yeah. Okay. Um, which brings us to something that is not entirely different from what we've been talking about. Um, I mean, there, there is, there is coherence in, 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 in some of the, not even coherence, but I can see direct correlation here, um, for the, the social imagination. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about, uh, generation cell? Sure. Um, so this one, uh, grew out of, uh, um, the fact that I moved to Portland, Oregon after I left Yale. So this was back in 2008. And I was struck and, you know, quite delighted in many ways by this kind of small scale entrepreneurial uh, energy that I saw um, among the young people here. Um, I'm talking about like food carts and, you know, sustainable uh, uh, businesses, you know, like wallets made out of recycled plastic bags, you know, things like that. Um, artisanal food production. Um, you know, it was kind of the heyday of that. And we use the word hipster a lot, even more than we do now. And, uh, you know, I, I, so I thought about it a lot, like what, what's going on here that's deeper than just, you know, these are interesting things to do. And, uh, I came to the idea that, um, for, for reasons that, uh, we could speculate about, um, entrepreneurialism 
and specifically this kind of small-scale, creative, socially conscious entrepreneurialism had become kind of a generational ideal. Um, I think that piece came out in 2012, Generation Cell. So it's, it's you know, the symbol, I mean, the millennial generational ideal, although also more broadly an ideal. And I point out in the piece that this was, you know, very different from what youth expression or even youth rebellion, because it was sometimes dressed up in the language of rebellion, uh, rebellion against, you know, the cart corporatocracy and so forth and mass production. Uh, this is very far from what youth rebellion used to look like. I mean, no one was talking about, they weren't starting small businesses in the 60s. I mean, maybe some people were, but it wasn't an ideal. The ideal was the commune. Um, and I trace, I sort of talk about successive uh, youth rebellion kind of uh, kind of cultural formations, you know, the hippies and the punks and the slackers. And I mean, they're all really interesting because they each have their own idea as well as their own kind of stylistic presentation, their own idea, their own kind of uh, affect, you know, their own emotion. Um, so that's what I talk about in Generation Cell. I got a lot of pushback from that piece, I, from especially from millennials. They thought that, you know, I was being cynical about it, about them. Yeah. But but it's it certainly, I mean, it, it maybe a little less now, but um, for a long, for a good while there, I think that, um, you know, the entrepreneur really was the culture hero. I mean, it, you know, grew out, it really started with Steve Jobs, I think, and the Silicon Valley explosion. The entrepreneur was the culture hero. Uh, entrepreneurialism was the form of uh, expression, uh, you know, sort of self-expression and expression of, you know, social passion, social ideals. Um, uh, and then, you know, sort of ultimately with the internet and, and, and everyone having to be their own brand, that's really where we, we go with that. Mm. What was the pushback specifically? Or I guess, you know, is that necessarily a bad thing that, you know, of, holding up the entrepreneur on a pedestal? Uh, I, I well, see it as I a mean, distinctly... It, no, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad... Sorry, I, I, I see it, Bill, as a distinctly American thing. You know, uh, the entrepreneur, you know, Hamilton, Horatio Alger, Benjamin Franklin, like these guys who, you know, bootstrapped themselves up it, it, as this... I don't want to say uniquely, but it is certainly a story that's part of the American character. So when I look at a lot of these guys who and girls who have, uh, you know, founded their own companies, Elon Musk is a polarizing guy, but like entrepreneurs in general, is, is it necessarily a bad thing or was it just a, a, a cultural phenomenon that you were absorbing while living in well, Portland? Well, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think my criticism was that I mean, it wasn't, it was taken as a criticism, right? Because what I, I, I mean, you're right with what you just said, but what I said earlier is also true, which is that, you know, kids in the fifties didn't rebel by starting a business, like starting a business was the square thing to do. It's, it was the grown up thing to do. It was the selling out thing to do. We don't use the term selling out anymore. And I think it's quite telling that we don't use that term. So, all of a sudden, rebellion now takes the form of participating in the capitalist economy. That's what I pointed out. And, mm. and yeah, that's what got the pushback. But, you know, what? listen, I mean, maybe it's, 
maybe it's fine. I mean, maybe this is the way change has to happen. I don't know. I don't remember. What did Jim Stark do? He didn't do anything for work. He was just, you know, rebel without a cause. He he just ditched school and drove cars around, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, you know, the ideal, whether it's the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the slackers in the 80s and 90s, the ideal was not to participate in the economy. I mean, you might need, maybe you needed to do, usually you needed to do that if you wanted to, you know, just to, just to support yourself, but it wasn't the ideal. It wasn't idealized. Hmm. Yeah. It, it was, it was, I guess, right. I mean, total abandonment or turn your back on, on the man, whatever the man is. Um, yeah. Uh, Bill, I want to, I want to just move, um, swiftly or not that, I mean, I have, I have time. Um, you can, you can, uh, feel free to, to, uh, to stop when you, when you'd like. Um, but there's just two more essays I want to talk about if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So the first is in the art section. We talked a little bit about this, um, uh, earlier on, but the essay, which is aptly entitled the arts have value i mean i would tend to agree they do as an artist myself. i think it's i think it's called studies show arts have value studies show arts have value um, right you want to give us some cliff notes on this sure i mean there are a lot of pieces in the book that are really short like two page just like little idea bullets as a friend of mine uh called them <laughs> uh that come from a, a column i did for the a weekly blog column that I did for the American Scholar a few years ago. Um, so this is one of those. And it's, it's, it's something that I'd wanted to get off my chest for a long time. Uh, studies show arts have value. And it's about, I mean, the, the specific occasion was some report in the New York Times about a study that showed that, you know, I don't know, reading fiction makes you more empathetic. Like there's value to reading fiction. And the reason this drives me crazy, it's not because I don't think there's value to reading fiction. It's that we don't need the social scientists to do a study with like 50 college students, some completely artificially contrived study where like they read a short story and then they take some test that supposedly measures their empathy to tell <laughs> us that reading fiction makes you more empathetic, right? But it's, it's, it's part of what people call scientism, right? Not, you know, which means scientism is a kind of belief that science has the answers to all questions and only science has the has uh, authoritative answers, right? So we need to go to science. We need to, and it can be, it can even be pseudoscience. It can be social science, which is often very pseudoscientific. Um, we need to go to science to, to tell us that the arts have value. We need to go to these studies, and I, and these studies, you know, often and again, especially in the social sciences, they're they all they're they're we know there's a replication crisis now in the social sciences. They're often uh, um, very flimsy, uh, uh, f the findings turn out to be very flimsy. Um, often the, the question is not posed in an interesting way. It doesn't really get at the important thing. It's just something that you happen to be able to measure. Um, but invariably, you know, journalists love to take these studies and turn them into news stories like researchers find that arts have value. And, and this all devalues the arts themselves, the arts and humanities, as sources of truth, as sources of instruction, 
of, of wisdom. And that's, um, that's a long explanation, a long description of a short piece where I just say like, you know, this is ridiculous that a lot of these studies are worthless and um, we shouldn't need a study. <laughs> we should, because ultimately what it's about is not even the arts, but to get back to kind of the, the overriding theme of the book and of our conversation, I mean, what, you know, what is it about a novel or a, or a song or a movie that enables, that, that enables it to capture some kind of truth? to be valuable, independently valuable to us, is that it is based on the creator's own experience. And mm. its value lies in our in the experience that it gives us. So what's really at stake here is the validity of the individual experience as a source of truth about the world. You know, I mean, science, of course, has its very important role to play, but we do not need to turn to science, let alone to social science, to validate the evidence of our own experience. That's the point. I totally agree, Bill. <laughs> uh, not to just be a yes man, but I, I totally agree. There are some things that are so glaringly obvious that when I... It's sort of like the, the, this doesn't need to be said. Thank you. But this, this, yeah. this doesn't need to be said. I just wrote an article for um, Penthouse. It's an Australian adult magazine, but to have, you know, uh, commentary in it, um, on, uh, on a bill that was passed, uh, a, a bill that was passed in Congress a few months ago. Um, and, uh, or it, it, at the time that, um, that I wrote it, the bill hadn't been passed yet, but there was all this controversy around that. And I was, I literally just wrote an article said, why, why are we discussing this? This is like the last thing that we should be discussing. This is the least controversial bill I have read in my entire life. Um, but yeah, I mean, studies show the arts have value. You re part of the reason I didn't do also in college, uh, psychology for one, um, having freshman year done, participated in some of those experiments where I, I had to participate in order to pass the class. Like I had to go be yeah, a participant yeah, yeah. You know, right, when yeah. I didn't want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And part of the reason I didn't do that or, or, or sociology or anthropology or whatever is because, um, yeah, some of the methodology was just complete bullshit. But anyway, uh, just to say, I totally agree. And as far as the arts are concerned, yeah, people wouldn't be reading books and, you know, looking at beautiful paintings hundreds of years later if they didn't have any value. So um, why the New York Times or whoever felt the need to grab on, I mean, it's not surprising, but grab on to, you know, some study like that uh, is, is a bit beyond, I mean, I understand it, but it's, I agree with the sentiment of what you're saying. And you wanted uh, to ask about one more? Yeah, I did. I wanted to ask about um, the last section of your book, which were shorter, slightly more personal essays, um, the, the My People essay. Yeah, they're not necessarily shorter. Some of them are actually um, long. But um, my, what did you, did you want to ask about the whole section? or? Oh, uh, yeah, I was just going to ask what, um, I mean, is, is there anything in particular that you wanted to I mean, my people is the name of a whole section, right? Yes, yes. The 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 Day of Atonement essay, if if any of them would be the one I wanted to talk about. Um, well, the Day of Atonement is about Israeli politics, and I think it's not the most interesting one to talk about. I mean, the last well, section well, I called it my people because um, 
I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community and was part of a progressive Zionist youth movement uh, in high school and college and a little bit after college. And um, so being Jewish and um, thinking about my relationship to that history and that tradition has been a really important part of my life and my sort of experience of myself and my thinking. Um, and uh, that I, I don't call that section being Jewish. I call it my people because uh, one of the pieces is actually about being Jewish in Portland. It's called the Jew in the Northwest. And mm. um, it's a very different culture out here. There are Jews. They don't have much of a presence. But more to the point, um, you know, that that phrase, my people, I realized that it it means something a little different than what I thought it means. Um, because... And it was only once I moved out here, after having lived essentially my whole life in the Northeast, in the New York area, a little bit in Boston, that what I was missing here, still miss here, is is the kind of uh, Eastern sense of ethnicity, right? Mm. So it's it's Jews and Italians and and Irish and 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 that whole kind of immigrant sensibility that um, was, has been so key in shaping the eastern cities and, you know, I think also the mid, some of the midwestern cities too, Chicago, Cleveland, so forth. Um, and, and the piece, A Jew in the Northwest, is, I mean, it's about a lot of things, but uh, ultimately it's about that recognition. So, the, you know, and sort of see, like, those are my people. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jewish too, Bill. and. Uh... I left. I left the United States um, two and a half, uh, two and a half years ago now, and it was only after I'd been for for Australia. Um, uh, it was only after I'd been gone for you know a little while that I I I maybe took for granted just the amount of you know other Jewish people I knew around me in in New York certainly, and then. Uh, even at Princeton, you know, they, they weren't that far away. Um, I, I came to Australia and they're like, they're there, but it, 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 certainly not in the circles that I was running in. It, it, they weren't as present, at least at first. Um, it was, I felt that that community was, um, the community that was just sort of baked into how I was brought up in, in New York. Like I didn't, I just had lots of friends who were Jewish. I didn't, wasn't something I consciously right. thought about. Um, right. But, but again, I mean, I've certainly, that's, you know, something I, I think about too. But, but again, the point really is that it's not about Jews per se. So my best friend in college was a kid from Brooklyn who's uh, half Polish and half Italian and, and went to a Jesuit high school and was very Catholic. I mean, he was leaving his Catholicism at the same time I was, you know, leaving my Judaism. And we completely connected, and I, I spent a lot of time hanging out with the, his friends, the friends of his who were going to college, also going to college in New York, and they were, you know, Italian and Irish and whatever. So that's the point. It's like, yes, I feel a, a special kinship and connection, obviously, with Jews in particular. We have a whole frame of reference. But in terms of the sensibility, uh, it's not... It's not, it's something different than just the Jewish sensibility. It's this kind of urban, uh, ethnic immigrant sensibility, I think. 
Yeah. Maybe it's Judeo-Catholic. I, I, I understand. I have a better sense of, of what you're describing now. Um, and I, I look, I felt that in Australia too, not, not with other Jews, but with other, you know, like backpackers, at least when I first arrived, people from all over the world descending upon one faraway land, um, across, you know, every uh, religion, race, skin color, country, whatever. Um, there was a certain backpacker sensibility, which is, you know, different, but it's the same kind of idea that, um, you can share something sort of intangible with people that isn't hooked onto any one particular identifying, uh, or identifiable characteristic. Yeah. Agreed. My last question, Bill, is about, um, America today. There are some people who want to sit around and, or not sit around, but stand up and, and fight the good fight. And there are others who just kind of want to sit back and watch Rome burn and, you know, let, let people tear each other apart. So, you know, um, and then there's those like me who have chosen to sort of like leave and observe from a distance. And I write, I'm a journalist. I, I think I make my contribution or at least I try to. Um, but my question is, is, is sort of about where we're at in America today and what, what the best course of action is or what the merits of the different ones are like between fighting the good fight, totally resigning wow. yourself and saying, this is beyond salvation. And then the third one of taking like an in-between strategy. I, I don't want to get on Twitter and argue with people every day. I just, it's not interesting to me. I, 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 I the culture wars bore me to a large degree, to be honest. Um, I don't know. How, how do you think about this? You're a person whose work I respect, whose writing I like, um, and who has a, you're very plugged in to a lot of the idiosyncrasies that characterize, you know, the America of yesterday and particularly the America of today and like how things have changed. So what's, what's the best course of action or, or where do we go from here? Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of a broad question. Um, well, let me make it more specific. No, Is it okay. better to fight the good fight or to sit back and watch things burn or to take a middle ground? I don't really think of things in those terms. And, and first of all, what does it mean to fight the good fight? I mean, I think that's, that to me is the real question. I mean, are people really sitting back and watching things burn? I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe that's just a position people are taking or, or you know, out of despair, or maybe they're just the kind of people who would not be involved. I mean, most people, I think it's fair to say, are not very, uh, don't pay much attention to politics, don't pay much attention to the world in a larger sense. And I don't say that with any criticism. Um, they're busy making a living, they're busy raising their families, they weren't bred, they didn't go to Princeton or Columbia, they weren't bred to like, feel like the world needs them to pay attention to the news or that they need to pay attention to the news. So, you know, I don't think they're sitting back and letting things burn, I think they're living their lives. Um, I also think, but, but leaving all of that aside, um, what does it mean to fight the good fight? I mean, what is the good fight? I, I, I'm not trying to get abstractly philosophical. I think a lot of my problem, well, my problem with the progressive left now, with most of it, although I consider myself on the progressive left, is that they're defining the good fight in a way that I think is not good. Um, so uh, there are many different ways to try to affect the course of the country. 
And also, a lot of them don't have anything to do with being, I mean, I, I don't really go on Twitter. I don't, except to post my own work, I don't go on Twitter. So, I mean, shouting at people on Twitter, I think, is, is, the, is the least useful. Um, there are a lot of people who just work in their community. Um, I, I mean, I know it's a cliche and it's this kind of thing that like, you know, you know, well, well-meaning liberals will write in the Atlantic, but it also happened, you know, it also happens to be true that, um, a lot of people are trying to make things better by, you know, being on a school board or just volunteering for the PTA or just, you know, we tend to operate at this global level. You know, like we're paying attention to the whole world. But I, I think a lot of people and a lot of the people who are doing the most good are really rooted in their communities. They're, they are focused on and connected to the people around them. I mean, immediately around them in a way that I frankly am not. Um, but that whole level or levels isn't visible to the chattering class that uh, is playing this gladiatorial sport with itself on Twitter or in the pages of the New York Times. Mm. Mm. It's, it, it's, it's prescient, observant, and <laughs> in some ways, this is funny. I, I like the way you talk, Bill. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on. I really, I really, uh, I was glad to be on. Thank you. Mm -hmm.